Hello and welcome to Inside Briefing, the podcast from the Institute for Government. I'm Bronwyn Maddox. Boris Johnson proved to be successful at campaigning to leave one political union, but does he have a winning plan to keep the United Kingdom together? With less than a month until elections in Scotland and Wales, and with unrest breaking out on the streets of Belfast and Londonderry, we're going to be looking at the State of the Union and the Prime Minister's plans to keep its four nations united. As elections approach, the success of the vaccine rollout is at the heart of the government's campaign, but concerns over the Oxford-AstraZeneca vaccine have spread from the EU to the UK. European Medicines Agency said that unusual blood clots associated with low blood platelets should be listed as very rare side effects of the vaccine. And in the UK, the Medicines and Healthcare Regulatory Agency has now confirmed that people under 30 will be offered an alternative if there's one available. So we're going to take a look at the implications of all that. Well, I'm joined in the virtual studio today by a trio of IFG experts on all things devolved. Akash Pound, one of our senior fellows, leads our work on that. Hi, Akash. Hi, Roman. Jess Sargent, senior researcher on our devolution and Brexit teams, is with us as well. Hi, Jess. Hi. And back in the studio is our senior fellow, Jill Rutter. Great to see you, Jill, so to speak. Thank you. Great, Great to be back. And I'm delighted that we're joined by our guest today, Alva Ray, the New Statesman's political correspondent and co-host of its podcast. Hi, Alva. Hi, thanks for having me. Great to have you with us. Well, let's start with this question about the union of the United Kingdom. All is not well with the state of the nation. In Scotland, the SNP is campaigning on a promise to hold a second independence referendum. Support for independence is rising in Wales, according to the polls, and nearly a week of violence in Northern Ireland has been linked to anger at the impact of the UK's departure from the EU. That's where we're going to begin in Northern Ireland. Alva, what has triggered this outbreak of violence? Well, I think I think that's the right question um, because it's not entirely straightforward. I think it's actually quite simple to say that there are just three causes of these riots um, and the violence that we've seen across Northern Ireland in recent days. And um, but I suppose there is a bit of political discord over how much weight to put on each one. So those three reasons would be you touched on on at least one already, but there's the underlying simmering tension in unionist communities caused by an an anger at the Irish sea border created by the Brexit deal. There's also the more recent development, which has catalyzed that anger, which is the decision not to prosecute Sinn Féin politicians, including the Deputy First Minister, Michelle O'Neill, over... Um, the attendance of these politicians at a funeral for a senior Republican, Bobby Story, last June. All of the senior figures in Sinn Féin attended that funeral, which was outside, and an estimated 2,000 people joined the lined the streets um, during that funeral in alleged breach of coronavirus restrictions. It was announced within the past few weeks that no charges would be brought. And so there's quite a lot of unionist discontent not just with Sinn Féin, but also with policing. And, and the DUP has been calling for the head of the police in Northern Ireland to resign. So those are the, the causes of unionist anger. But then I think there's, a, there's another important aspect, which isn't really, I think, sufficiently discussed in British coverage of this, which is, is that those are the, I suppose, the high-minded political reasons. But there's also the kind of the base reality of the political ecosystem in Northern Ireland, which is that 
these feelings are being exploited to an extent by paramilitary groups, by loyalist paramilitaries in Belfast and Derry and elsewhere, um, where they're encouraging very, very young people to go out and cause trouble to to protest against sort of, in a way, nothing in particular, to just show their, to direct their anger towards the police, to throw petrol bombs and fireworks and stones and bricks. Um, the justification for that is is those um, causes of unionist anger that I've already discussed. But there is another element, which is that there have been recent police crackdowns on those paramilitary groups and their criminal activity. I think paramilitary makes them sound more glamorous than, than maybe... They should be in that in, in today's context, they're really just criminal gangs and, and drug dealers with a link back to the paramilitary past in Northern Ireland. But um, there have been recent police crackdowns on their influence in communities across Northern Ireland and, and attempts to curb drug dealing. And so that's a another reason why these riots have sprung up, because it's in the interests of these paramilitary groups to encourage younger people to I suppose mount a resistance at this police crackdown I think that those three elements are all important to understanding this context I think if you leave one out it's it slightly imbalances the conversation. Uh, Alva that's fascinating and thank you for dwelling on that third one because that is one that really doesn't get an awful lot of coverage outside Northern Ireland or a lot of understanding I'd suggest but of just how widespread that factor is and how it's 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 fed off the past but is different from the past the parliament just to be clear the paramilitary paramilitary groups um that you're talking about or as you, as you said they're sort of um uh, evolution of those are, are those right across uh, the communities or, or more on the unionist side I think that's that's a, a very good question and one I haven't been asked before. I think in this context, it's important to to note that this is a this is a problem within unionism and, and within loyalism. And so, in this context, I'm, I mean, I almost feel nervous about about naming them. But I think the, the Southeast Antrim UDA, um, which is a loyalist paramilitary organisation, is one of the big ones. But in general, in the Northern Irish political ecosystem these exist across the spectrum and it's difficult I suppose to I think it sounds very strange I suppose to to a British audience but I think it's just important to know that this is just presence um in Northern Irish politics to to a greater or lesser extent that this tends to be within particularly working class communities where those divides are deeper I think in in a lot of middle class communities in Northern Ireland the sectarian divides don't go as deep or don't exist really so much at all but particularly in in working class communities um there very often would be a loyalist or a republican paramilitary presence i think you know at the most negative end of that they incite violence they you know they are involved in in criminality and drug dealing and but i sort of at the more positive end of that if you can if you want to describe it that way they just they act as a form of community leadership i suppose that there are these informal structures it's seen as the you know the senior figures in the community who keep the younger ones in check so even though in this case it's seen as the senior i suppose the senior paramilitary leaders potentially egging on young people without muddying their hands with it themselves. There are lots of cases, I think, where people would argue that senior community leaders who have their, you know, who are vaguely linked to paramilitary groups exert a kind of a, a disciplinary role within within Northern Irish communities. 
Mm. No, it's something I mean, we, we heard a lot about in the past, but as I said, you don't hear about it so much outside Northern Ireland at the moment, but thank you for this portrait that you've just given us in a very riveting way. And your word ecosystem, I must say, you know, I think is a way of capturing how, um, how the complexity of it and how these relationships are so interdependent and indeed how they are flourishing. Jill, can we go back to some of the, the political points that Alva mentioned first, and particularly about the Northern Ireland Protocol? And I wondered whether you felt it was responsible for you know, triggering a lot of this um, discontent on the unionist side and whether it could have been avoided. Well, the two questions there, I mean, it was clear that there was always going to be a problem with Brexit, um, particularly any Brexit that meant the UK leaving the single market and the customs union, that there was going to be a problem somewhere, given that the EU's register red lines was protection of the integrity of the single market. There's some quite interesting articles coming out about was there a different approach? Rory Montgomery, former very senior Irish government official, has argued that the die was cast very early when Theresa May, remember at Lancaster House, said no return to a hard border uh, in the island of Ireland. And that was interpreted as no checks anywhere on the island of Ireland. We went through all that very long uh, agony of the Theresa May backstop. Theresa May, I think you could see waking up to the implications, the sort of Brexit she was arguing for on the island of Ireland and trying to concoct solutions to square the circle, but ultimately judged by too many in her own party to have come up with a solution that basically meant Brexit was being sacrificed on the altar of no hard border in the island of Ireland through a combination of the backstop and the Chequers Agreement, and you know, historians will be all writing about the way in which we ended up there. Boris Johnson made a very explicit decision that he would accept a regulatory and customs border in the Irish Sea as the price for Great Britain on goods and the whole UK on services being allowed to escape from the EU's regulatory and jurisdictional orbit. And I think you know, we saw that when that withdrawal agreement came forward in Parliament in late 2019, early 2020, we saw that it was rejected by all the representatives across the political spectrum in Ireland. Uh, it was a sort of really unifying thing that no one really liked that solution. What was very notable in the 2017 to 29 Parliament, 2019 Parliament was that for most of that, there was no executive functioning in Northern Ireland, no executive functioning in Northern Ireland. So it hadn't been resurrected. Uh, so there was no government voice in the talks. And with the honourable exception of Lady Sylvia Herman, Sinn Féin's policy of abstentionism meant that the only voice in those Westminster debates that we heard was from the DUP, which, as we know, never accepted Theresa May's backstop mm -hmm. and was always rejecting it, but never coming forward with its own solution. So there is a long running, simmering problem with the sort of Brexit. And clearly, Unionists, I think, but I'd be very interested in Alva's views on this. Unionists, I think, think uh, two things. One, that they have been forced to accept something that waters down their sense of being part of the UK, an integral part of the UK. And the Northern Ireland Protocol, as agreed by Boris Johnson, definitely does that. I mean, it means Northern Ireland's in a different regime to the rest of the UK for trade in goods. You can argue yeah. how significant it is, best of both worlds, but it definitely does, yeah. does put them in a different place. 
Jess, I just wonder, could you bring us up to date on what the state of play of traffic and trade into Northern Ireland and and out from Great Britain is and whether there's any prospect of it getting better Absolutely. So we saw um, some elements of the protocol come into force at the beginning of the year. Um, so now there are customs declarations required on goods going between Great Britain and Northern Ireland and some checks. Um, the big outstanding issue is these checks on agri-food um, and other kind of plant or animal products. According to the protocol, um, there's going to be the need for quite extensive checks there. Um, so physical inspections and infrastructure to facilitate that potentially on up to 30% of kind of super market products and those sorts of things. Back in December, the UK and the EU agreed a three-month grace period for that to delay the full implementation of these checks, which has now come to an end. We saw the UK government unilaterally um, take the decision to extend that grace period to prevent these checks from happening. But there are still ongoing discussions um, in the joint committee between the UK and the EU as to what will happen in future. I mean, part of the problem here is that the Northern Ireland Department of Agriculture, which is led by a DUP minister, is not uh, taking the actions necessary to facilitate the infrastructure that will be needed to conduct these checks. Within this kind of very difficult political context, I think there is issues for the UK and the EU to discuss um, about what can be done to minimise those checks, which will place further burdens on traders and and could result in kind of more disruption, potentially even to supermarket supply chains. Right. So it actually could get worse. I and mean, it's not just teething problems when, when, when this current unilateral extension has expired. Absolutely. I don't think we haven't seen the protocol in, in full force yet. Like I say, there are ongoing discussions and it will have to see kind of where we land, whether there's a kind of further extension or whether there is a long term solution to this. People have been talking about some kind of trusted trader scheme or even a UK EU agreement um, on, on agri-food and other plant products. Um, but yes, certainly the issues to be resolved on the protocol, there are still a lot outstanding. We're going to have to move on in a second from Northern Ireland, but Alva, I wonder if you could pick up Jill's um, intriguing question of whether, in retrospect, let me add, if peace is your objective, uh, there was too much weight put on not having a border within the island of Ireland, and so we've ended up where, where we are now. I think there's a lot of merit in that argument, to be honest. I think that the the thing that's slightly complicated it is, that, I mean, to state the obvious, a land border and a sea border sound very, very different. And I think that that was the underlying assumption when we were talking about that, that one posed a different level of risk to another. Um, but I think what we're seeing is that the reality is more similar than we may be appreciated. I think that there are questions for all of the political parties. I think there's a lot of focus on the role of the Conservatives in this and the promises that Boris Johnson made and didn't keep, and also the role of the DUP as kingmakers in this, and the kind of the way they use their influence to get a Brexit deal that hasn't served their objectives in any way. But I think that there are also questions for all of the other parties in Northern Ireland, as you say, about whether they were focused too much on one kind of border and and too little on another kind. I think that part of that was that there, there were already in the pre-Brexit era some checks on certain kinds of agricultural products um, between Great Britain and Northern Ireland already. And I think that there was a sense, including, I, w- I would say, like I and colleagues thought this, that since there, all, there were already minimal checks that no one in Northern Ireland materially experienced, that having more of a border like that wouldn't make much of a difference to the lives of people in Northern Ireland, it would only be the principle. But I think what we've seen is that 
actually the the point is that there's you know there's still infrastructure that can can be a target for yeah. the people who object to the principle and we saw in february that the the people working at the ports in belfast and larne the you know the human manifestation of the irish seaboard of the people who have to enforce these new checks and um, were stood down from their duties for a few days because of the really high level of yeah. security threats against them so i, I think we just hadn't really, I think, anyone fully appreciated that. Yeah, and how complex that is. I mean, we could mm. we could you know, spend ages discussing just this. We're going to have to move move on and swing east uh, without the help of bridges or tunnels built by the Prime Minister to Scotland and um, indeed Wales. Akash, perhaps you could come in here. Just tell us about uh, the elections that are coming, the May the 6th elections. There aren't any in, in, in Northern Ireland, but the ones in Scotland and Wales are getting a lot of attention. What's at stake? Yeah, so Northern Ireland is is indeed the only part of the UK where there isn't uh, going to be any uh, election taking place on May the 6th. Because of the postponement of last year's elections in England, this is going to be the biggest day for devolved and local elections um, ever to have taken place. So it's going to be um, a really interesting political moment for, for all sorts of reasons. I think there's going to be, there's, there's therefore, you know, lots of different issues at stake and there's going to be all sorts of competing narratives. But yeah, I mean, obviously the big one as far as the future of the union is concerned has to be the, the Scottish Parliament election. Key question is really going to be whether we do end up with a pro-independence majority after the after the uh, polls have closed in Hollywood, whether that's the SNP by itself or in, in coalition of some kind or cooperation with other pro-independence parties. Um, so that's going to be the key thing to look out for. Um, in Wales, we'll see whether Plaid can make uh, a breakthrough there. They are talking up um, the, the the potential for, for Wales to follow Scotland down the, the path of independence in a far more confident way than previous leaders of, of Plaid Cymru have, have done, actually. Akash, can we, can we just pause on that for a second? Because I was wondering, when you, when you were saying at the beginning, look, Scotland's the big show, uh, obviously, in a sense, it is, and it is by far the noisiest. But the intricacy of what's happening in Wales uh, is is Plaid Cymru doing better than in the past might just get enough that if it holds the balance of uh, of power if there's a some of the polls are suggesting a three-way split between them Labour and the 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 Conservatives that Plaid might just be able to insist on a referendum as as the uh, price of um, joining a coalition with Labour it's certainly the kind of thing is much exercising the Welsh press at the moment do you find that realistic? I mean, I think it it's, seems quite likely on the polls that they will be in that kingmaker position. You know, we don't know, obviously, exactly what's going to happen over the next few weeks, but seems unlikely that Labour's going to be able to govern alone. Very unlikely that Labour could do a deal with the Conservatives. Conservatives implied certainly couldn't work together. So then you end up with this question of, yeah, what what could a Labour-applied coalition or some kind of cooperation arrangement look like? Plaid has just published its manifesto yesterday. They've they've put front and centre a pledge to seek the power to hold a referendum on independence, which they want to happen by the middle of the decade. I think it's rather unlikely that Labour would sign up for that. I mean, Labour is, is a unionist party. They're very much in favour of further constitutional reform, further devolution to Wales, 
perhaps even a move to something more like a federal relationship between the Senate and Westminster. Prospect of Ply doing very well has been put to him. Um, everyone ag- acknowledging the injustice that Mark Drakeford's handling of the crisis has been popular in Wales, um, but but somehow the, the the bounce from that is going to Plaid Cymru, not on, not to to him. But he said, um, if democracy yields, you know, support for parties that want that, then um, then the consequence should flow. There should be a referendum. Alva, can I just bring you on this? And, and um, your magazine's been writing quite a bit about it and mm-hmm. talking on your podcast. Um, what do you what do you make of it? I so I actually wouldn't completely discount the idea of Plaid and the Conservatives shutting Labour out of power in Wales. And when I say I wouldn't completely discount that, I, I really d- don't know how likely that would be or not. But I think it could be in Plaid's political interests to boot Labour out of power in Wales. So that would be my only caveat, really. And but but, but then I think that then there is that question is as I think you, you both put very well, whether Labour could ever concede to an independence referendum in Wales in order, you know, for that to be the price of admission um, for a coalition. I think that is just so unlikely that other outcomes are worth bearing in mind. Yeah, there's a lot to uh, that will have to come out in the picture as well. And, and that's before getting on to the economics, where it is a much, much... Uh, harder argument for Wales to make that it could thrive independently than it is for Scotland. So, okay, let's go to Scotland. Jess, what, what, what are your thoughts about the union and Nic- Nicola Sturgeon? Has, has Boris Johnson got a plan to counter her or is he just uh, suddenly hailing Alex Salmond as his salvation? Um, I think what we've seen is a lot of kind of disarray in the UK government's union strategy. We've heard uh, those issues around the union unit in number 10. But I think the clearest element we've seen so far um, is UK government plans to spend more money directly in the devolved nations. So we've seen the Treasury make a number of announcements um, of new funds, like the new levelling up fund, um, and also the Shared Prosperity Fund, which is expecting to replace some EU funding um, that is no longer available now the UK has left the EU. Um, In a lot of these areas, the UK government is proposing to spend money in devolved areas like transport, infrastructure, skills and education, And we've seen all three devolved administrations be very vocal um, in their opposition to that, actually unusually Northern Ireland as well. Um, the finance minister there has been has been very strong in his, his opposition. And they argue that UK government spending money directly in devolved areas undermines devolution, uh, the devolution settlement and the role of these governments. I think we have we don't quite know yet um, how the public will respond to this, kind of which side they will fall on, whether they will see this as attack on as attack on devolution or of the UK government doing more to spend money in areas like Wales and Scotland, um, where potentially um, it has less has been available. But I think the key thing for the UK government here, particularly in Scotland, um, is it's not just about shoring up existing support for the union. If we look at the polls um, on support for independence, it needs to be able to change people's minds. Um, And I think it's important for the UK government to remember that whatever um, your constitutional preference, particularly in Scotland, whether you're in favour of the union or independence, devolution itself is quite popular. So I think there is a risk of looking like the UK government is undermining devolution, even if the intention there is to try and build support for the union. I think so. I think these elections will be a kind of key test of that strategy and whether it's likely to change the hearts and minds um, of people in Scotland and Wales as well. And Jill, just your take on on this overall. I mean, how much in danger do you think the union is? 
I think it's uh, it's clearly under the biggest threat it's been under, you could say, until you know the events of 100 years ago in Ireland, which resulted in the creation of Northern Ireland and partition, which I think it's the 100th anniversary of uh, this year. I think it is uh, really facing quite an existential threat. And one of the things I think that is particularly difficult for this government, uh, a sort of Brexit-supporting government, is that it is really quite difficult to make the arguments against uh, Scottish independence. And we saw that uh, as an event I hosted in the summer at IFG, where we had Lord Lilly, Peter Lilly, uh, speaking in favour of, uh, of Brexit, and Philippa Whitford from the SNP was almost exploding as he was setting out the case for Brexit and why the UK didn't need to be part of the EU, wasn't a big problem, you know, it's about control and sovereignty and could easily ride out the economic disbenefits, uh, etc. And you could see that she was just sitting there on the Zoom call, on the call, sort of waiting to intervene to say, well, basically, absolutely every one of those arguments you made about the UK and the EU, I, as a nationalist politician, can make about Scotland and the UK. And I think that's the particularly difficult thing you come on to. It's also quite interesting. I've been looking at some uh, some research that... Uh, that was done in some focus groups in the summer with some people who were sort of well-off leave voters. And what was really interesting was the well-off leave voters in Wales were real devolution sceptics. They thought devolution was quite a mess, unnecessary extra layer of government in Wales. But in Scotland, uh, at least back then, they all thought, whatever they thought about independence, that Nicola Sturgeon was having such a good crisis compared to Boris Johnson, this was last summer, that really they were, some of them were even tempted to vote for her despite the independence issue, which is really quite interesting. Uh, that's, that's, that's really fascinating. Um, Albert, we're going to have to move on, but really briefly, um, forgive me, um, do, do you have any thoughts of whether you think the union is going to hold together? Um, Gosh, that's such a big question. I mean, I think it is under serious strain, clearly from everything that we have said. I think that the the slight improvement in how Scottish Labour is performing with its new leader, Anna Sarwar, who performed, I think, very well in the Scottish leaders debates a few weeks ago, show that there is a there is a tiny glimmer of space in the Scottish political debate for a progressive party to make the case against an independence referendum right now, which had been slightly missing under Richard Leonard's kind of lackluster leadership. He was making that case, but he just wasn't getting a hearing. And I think Anna Sarwar has slightly improved Labour's chances, which is helpful for the Conservatives or anyone making the unionist case in Scotland. But I think that I mean, it's that and the vaccine bounce are the, are the things, you know, holding the union up in Scotland, I think, at the moment. Let's swing now to the government's main priority at the moment, and coronavirus and the pandemic. Uh, not many podcasts where we don't uh, discuss it. The vaccine rollout's brought something of a vaccine bounce for Johnson in the in the polls, um, but there's been increasing controversy about the safety of the Oxford-AstraZeneca vaccine, mainly in the EU, but that's now been uh, spreading here. Jill, how bad a blow is this for the government? 
I think there are two things to distinguish, one of which is the substantive issue, and one of which is the sort of wider implications for what's called vaccine confidence. Um, there have been sort of two issues with AstraZeneca. One was the initial approvals where the EU uh, and lots of the national regulators in the EU, which act separately from the European Medicines Agency, uh, were more cautious about approving the AstraZeneca vaccine for use in older age groups. And the reason that they were cautious about that was that AstraZeneca didn't actually produce very good data on that from their trials various reasons uh, from the way they ran their trials and the fact that they had very few cases of COVID in their control group, which made it very difficult to make a judgment. The UK regulated them, uh, MHRA decided to approve on the basis that they uh, sort of extrapolated from the performance of other vaccines, thought the reaction in older groups was likely to be very similar to in younger age groups and therefore approved it, whereas some European countries went from saying it was not proven to be effective to remember President Macron saying proven ineffective. So AstraZeneca, if you like, has always been battling in the EU against that sort of initial sceptical handling through a combination of sort of some political misinterpretation, Chinese whispers, and some bad press reporting, most notably in handles that. And, and, and as you touched on, perhaps some badly designed trials right at the beginning. And, so, and some not that well conducted trials, I think it has to be said. And remember that the US regulator hasn't approved it yet because the US demands that the trials are, uh, are in the uh, US. And so they haven't used that data at all. So that was the initial phase of the AstraZeneca. Then we had this emergence of a different story, which was of some very rare uh, and everybody says you know, very, very, very rare associated blood clots. That emerged in Norway and then in Germany, so their regulators said. And we had these sort of reactions of people pausing the AstraZeneca vaccine. So national regulators in the EU pausing use of the AstraZeneca or confining it to older age groups appeared to be a problem particularly associated with younger age groups and with younger women in particular. At the time, we didn't hear anything very much over here, and our politicians all sort of slightly you know, interpreted this, I think, as a bit of confirmation bias, if you like, by EU vaccine sceptical governments who already were a bit dubious about AstraZeneca, which is why I think actually to an extent the MHRA reaction has now come as a bit of a surprise over here that they've said, well, actually now we have seen some cases like this in the UK as well extraordinarily small, and these may be associated with the different approach we've taken to vaccine rollout, who we vaccinated when, but we have seen some of these cases. And that's why a combination now of the MHRA and the Joint Committee on Vaccination and Immunisation, JCVI, have slightly changed the guidance in the UK, such that if you are under 30, so you're someone like Jess, you're under 30, uh, when you're called up for your vaccination, which will probably not be for some time yet, Jess, if one is available, as you said, Bronwyn, you will be offered another vaccine. And that is probably most likely yeah. now to be a Pfizer or a Moderna vaccine. The interesting thing is the European Medicines Agency is now in a position where it's, it is less cautious about AstraZeneca than the MHRA because it's basically just maintained its general use uh, approval, which had all along, it's just listed this as one of the possible side effects to watch out for. 
Well, no, thanks for all that. This is hotly debated in my household, I have to say, as I have a, an 18-year-old female who's had one dose of the AstraZeneca uh, because of, of, uh, of asthma um, and you know, pondering whether to get the second. I'm, I'm arguing. Uh, yeah, I'm arguing. The advice, the advice is now that if you've had one dose, all these problems have emerged after the first dose, not after the second dose. There is a question for me about whether they've actually got that many people who've actually had a second dose of the AstraZeneca in these uh, these age groups. I think that's a really good point because what you're talking about is is a problem with the science and testing, particularly when the numbers are very very small, both uh, uh, you know for people producing side effects at all, and that's what all these tests have been grappling with. Alva, listening to this, I wonder if you, if you could give us your take on how much is problems with with the science and then you know the, the very nature of science uh, stuff stuff emerges becomes clearer, and how much is um, has been politics, countries playing politics with this, either rushing to uh, attack the British, uh, partly British created vaccine, um, or Britain rushing to defend it? Yeah, it's it's interesting, because as you can tell, being Northern Irish, but working in London and covering British politics, I also follow Irish politics quite closely. So I do have quite a sense of of how the, the public debate around the vaccines has gone there. And I think there is a really strong feeling. We get it in emails to the New Statesman and, and questions to our own podcast quite a bit. A real feeling among people in the Republic of Ireland that the UK has stolen their vaccines. And, and, and Alba, do they mean the AstraZeneca vaccine? Yeah, and 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 I think that all of the there's been so much tension. I think that there probably has been a little bit of gloating on the British side. I think some of that is just the the kind of the correct facts that Britain negotiated better contracts and earlier. Some of that hasn't hasn't come across very well. I also think that beyond the, I think the the way this has been politicised by the EU a lot and the UK a bit. I think that there is a there was a little bit of an issue yesterday with the way that announcement about the changes to the rollout of the AstraZeneca vaccine in the UK would be handled. Speaking just with a journalist's hat on, I think the way they didn't use an embargo was really so so they didn't release all of the important information in advance to ensure that it was reported correctly and accurately and um, I think that was a, a really stupid move by government communications even though it was you know I think Jonathan Van Tam the deputy chief medical officer for England emphasized that it was a scientific briefing but it was coming from a government department and I think that the incentives on journalists to report a, a live press conference immediately meant that I think it wasn't communicated terribly well and probably won't have been terribly good for vaccine confidence. I mean, there's an even bigger discussion about whether it should have been the subject of a press conference like that at all, given the, the risks that you're balancing of damage to vaccine confidence versus informing people and making this announcement. But I think certainly the way the message that people under 30 will have received is that there's a serious risk of blood clots and you won't be having it um, from the from the AstraZeneca vaccine, which isn't quite the case because plenty of people, your daughter included, are still encouraged to take the second dose of their vaccine from AstraZeneca if they've already had the first. But you can you can see the confidence yeah. problem that people who are 31 or 32 or 41 or 42 might think, well, you know, if not for this group, then why should I have it either? I mean, Jess, you know, listening to this 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 mix of 
communications problems and science and, and politics. How much do you detect a, a Brexit element in this, in the relations between the EU and, um, and, and the UK over this? Yeah, I think there has been a temptation on both the UK and the EU side to kind of put this in the context of Brexit. I mean, initially, um, the UK's decision to approve the vaccine, um, some ministers attributed to the, the, their ability to do that faster um, to Brexit and the fact that they were no long, longer subject to EU rules. There has been some questions as to whether that is actually the case. Um, but I think there is still that temptation um, to go back to that issue. Um, I think equally, the EU has felt the pressure um, very much from member states um, about their own vaccine rollout um, and whether they have under-delivered on, on procurement compared to the UK. You know, they're feeling the pressure to show that things work yeah. better if you do it as a block. And perhaps the UK's success has undermined that logic. Um, but I think actually what we've seen in terms of the potential for for disagreements between the UK and the EU, there was some concern around potential EU vaccine controls and kind of what implications that might have for the UK's rollout. We saw potentially that kind of being pulled back from the brink slightly and the UK and the EU are now working towards a kind of win-win situation, as as they said. Um, So although rhetorically, I think we've seen quite a lot of politics, in terms of the actual diplomacy, I think actually this is an example of something that has gone better, um, UK and EU working than some areas of Brexit like the protocol. That's a really interesting point. And Akash, just finally rounding out, um, is the vaccine roll out a point of, of, of uh, competition between the devolved nations of, of the UK? Or is it one thing that the UK is actually managing to do as a whole? Well, happily, it hasn't really become a uh, politicised issue or a source of any public disputes between the UK and devolved governments. There's been quite close uh, coordination, certainly between the, the chief medical officers. So the, the four governments have ended up with you know, very similar plans in terms of prioritisation of, of different groups for the vaccine rollout. The procurement has been centrally handled by, by the UK government. And I think the devolved governments quite, quite sensibly uh, recognised that the UK government was best placed to, to procure vaccines for, for the whole UK. And then the, the devolved nations have each been allocated a sufficient share of the vaccine supply to, to ensure that they can then roll out uh, the vaccination program appropriately and within their own nations. So, yeah, I mean, there's there's been some criticism at certain points that, for example, Scotland and Wales seem to start a bit more slowly than England. There was a bit of snark from some UK ministers offering to uh, to, we're asking Nicola Sturgeon whether whether the Scottish government needed more help from the UK government back in January, February. But no, for the most part, I think this this has been an area where where, where there's been good cooperation and um, and and the numbers have have been um, good in terms of vaccine rollout throughout the UK. Can I just give a shout out here to the importance of independent regulators and arm's length bodies, both here and in the EU. Because I think there's one thing to have Matt Hancock or Boris Johnson assuring us that actually the balance of risks says take the AstraZeneca vaccine, even if you're in uh, the under 30 age group, because actually the risk is incredibly small, particularly if there's any very significant level of COVID around compared to um, compared to the risks of getting COVID. But it's very different when you see... June Rain, who runs the MHRA, or Emma Cook, who runs the European Medicines Agency, making those statements. And I think this is a real area where the more 
the decisions are very, very clearly being taken without political pressure by independent regulators, the better for uh, public confidence. No, I, I quite agree with you. And and independent, quite large regulators. Uh, it's not as if um, you know, you've got governments of Scotland or Wales or something offering different vaccine if they're elected and that kind of thing. We'll, we'll, we'll come back to it. But thank you for that last point, Jill. That's going to have to be it for this edition of Inside Briefing. So my huge thanks to Jess Sargent, Akash Pound, Jill Rutter, and especially to Alva Ray. It's been great to have you all with us. And if you listening enjoy this podcast, then head to IFG Live, our sister channel. Lots of great new episodes for you there, including a look ahead to the G7 Summit. And coming up next week, a discussion on how to run a successful government reshuffle, just in case there's one coming. You can listen to all our podcasts at iTunes, Acast, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. Please do leave us a review. Lots of votes coming up across the UK. Please vote for our podcast first. And remember to check out all our work at instituteforgovernment.org.uk. That's it for this week. Parliament is in recess, but the politics never stops. <laughs>